and welcome into episode number two of Automatic College Basketball Podcast. And we're excited that you're back here as we're continuing to break down both men's and women's college basketball. Steffi, how was your week? It seemed like you had a little bit of a busy week. I had a good week. Uh, finished uh, the weekend at my alma mater, uh, calling Florida State versus Florida. Always fun to, to one, be present. You know, I got to be in the arena, and they had a really good crowd, but um, just to be present for that kind of rivalry. I mean, that was my favorite rivalry in college. I mean, second to probably Florida-Georgia. If you ask anyone that went to Georgia, it's Georgia-Florida, but it's Florida-Georgia. And <laughs> it, it was just, it was, it was great to be there. It was a good game to uh, call. Uh, Florida surprisingly, you know, had a tough offseason with the resignation of Cameron Newbauer, and so they're under first-year interim head coach Kelly Ray Finley, and they they crushed Florida State. There are very low expectations on Florida, obviously, with so much up there. Who's going to be the coach? What you know? How's the team going to be? And they at one point were up by 25, 30 points on Florida State, and um, the fans loved it. So it, it was fun. You know, Rich, we, we, I took for granted being in arenas. And that was my first time being back in one in a year. Just it was, I don't know how, you know, we, we talk basketball, but when you're there and you hear the, you know, the sliding on the court, the, the nets, the fans, you're just like, man, I love what I do. It's completely different. Totally. That's why I, I thought about it, uh, actually. Watching Purdue lose to Rutgers on that half-court shot by Ron Harper Jr., which is absolutely amazing because it just devastated my automatic for the week last week Yeah, <laughs> when I thought Purdue would stay ranked number one for a little bit longer than a, a couple of days. But it just reminded me of how great having the crowds are. And I've been at the rack, Rutgers Athletic Center there, and I can only imagine uh, if that shot would have happened last year, just how different would it have been when there's no fans Dead. to go crazy and run out on the court and, you know, just be celebrating like that. I mean, that's something that we truly missed last year. I think that's why you're seeing a lot of student athletes storming the court. You know, they just, they don't even know how to act. They, they don't. They, they, they had a year off and no matter what kind of win, you know, they're storming the court and it's, it's fun and it's good to see. And it's, it, I know that it's uplifting for the actual student-athletes. You know, I know that it's good to have them back and feel that support and, and the energy, you know, and, and even for broadcasts. I mean, it's just glad it's back, glad we're doing good. Yeah, I think that's the key word that you just said right there, energy. And that's what has been missing. But now let's move to our guest this episode, Mr. Terrence Oglesby, who played at Clemson University. And this is an opportunity where we got to sit down with Terrence and really dive into the men's basketball side and some of the things that are upcoming for this season and that he's already noticed and some of the things that he's seeing in the game today versus years ago. Now, Terrence, who has dual citizenship in Norway, would end his high school career as the all-time leading scorer at Bradley Central High School in Cleveland, Tennessee, and would play two seasons for head coach Oliver Purnell at Clemson University, where he would earn ACC All-Freshman Team honors while also leading the team in three-point field goals made. In his sophomore season, he averaged 13.7 points per game and once again led the Tigers in threes made, three-point field goal percentage, and even led, and even led the team in free-throw percentage 
but would surprise many by declaring to go pro. And Terrence would enjoy an eight-year pro career in Europe and the G League, and he would graduate from Clemson and would also receive his master's in athletic leadership during his coaching stint back at Clemson with Brad Brunel. He would also spend time as an assistant coach at Carson Newman before working as a TV and radio college basketball color analyst, where you can find him now, and you can also find him working with Jeff Goodman and Rob Douster as a host and analyst for the Field of 68, a college basketball podcasting network. And now it's time for our conversation with T.O., Mr. Terrence Oglesby. T.O., Mr. Terrence Oglesby, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast with us. And I know right now your life is a little crazy. All these field of 68 after dark, all these hours. Tell us what that's like right now. I mean, you're staying up late night, my friend, talking college hoops. You know, it's wild. We go from, you know, 11 to about 12, 15, 12, 30. And then some nights when it gets going really late, like for Alabama and Houston the other night, I, I was on with John Fanta and Jeff Goodman that day. And we ended up going, we started at 1130 and we ended up going until one because there was just so much that happened. That was the first, uh, was it Friday or Saturday that it was only college basketball besides the Army Navy football game. So it was finally starting to get some attention and it's, it's been going really well. I'm more of a type A personality, so I like to get up in the morning and this has put, uh, <laughs> it's put me to the, it's put me to the test, but it's been good. It's been good. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of freedom to talk about what you actually see. I don't have to really go around any. Um, there's not a whole lot of red tape with what we're doing, and it's just basketball. And uh, I've really enjoyed it so far. I really enjoy being around those people. And I, I've been blessed with the opportunity to be able to talk to not just about the ACC or not just about the SEC. I've been able to you know, cover the Power Five or Power Six school. I'm going to start saying Power Six because the Big East is so good. They, they deserve it. And even a lot of mid-major stuff, too. So it's been... It's been a lot of fun. It's been eye-opening. And, uh, you know, the good thing is it's been really challenging. And uh, you guys both know this. One of the best things I coached for a little while, it felt like Groundhog Day. But it, whenever I got into the media, it's always changing. So there's always something that, you know, piques my interest. Because if I get bored with one team, I can just go to another. And it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun for me. I've really enjoyed uh, this transition. Yeah, and that's what Stephanie and I like about this podcast is that we can talk men's, women's, but it doesn't strict, uh, it doesn't put us in a corner, so to speak, in terms of only one conference or you know one team from that perspective. But so real quick, that Alabama Houston game, I got to ask, was that goaltending against Alabama? We talked to a couple of officials afterwards, and Jeff did while we were on the show. By rule, if it's anywhere above the cylinder, and it's goaltending. The problem that you run into is, is after the game's over, if no whistle's been blown, you can't retroactively go back after the game's finished. Because as soon as the game's over, the game's over. You can't go back and do anything. If there would have been a whistle and then they would have gone and looked at it, then I think it would have been goaltending because Rob Doster brought it up to me. Well, that ball wasn't going in. Well, that doesn't matter. If it's still above the cylinder and there was a little piece of that ball that was, then it's goaltending. So Houston... Might have gotten one taken from him, but at the same time, that was grown man basketball. Yes. Yeah. And and another thing, another cool thing about it is, is I have a TV that's right here. It's off right now. But at the same time, like, we'll be doing the show and I'll have the game going. So our reactions are genuine. 
on the spot. It's genuine. And the cool thing is, is, you know, I have the cell phone number of the director of officiating from the ACC. Jeff's got it from the SEC. So like right away, we can get the information right away. And I feel like I'm pretty up to date with a lot of that stuff and the rule book and all that. Cause I to come in and do all these games and everything. I feel like that's just a big asset to have. You guys both agree with that. I'm sure just to be able to have a strong uh, knowledge of what the rules actually are. So I was right to begin with, but it was like, well, I just wanted that confirmation for me. Right. So it's uh, to be able to do that live and to talk about it live, uh, I think brings a different kind of element to what we're doing and kind of a genuine thing because we don't leave the camera when we're trying to figure something out. We stay right there. So it's like the audience is with us. And I think that's a really cool part of what we're doing. Yeah. And of course, and obviously having inside information too, if you touch base with officials like that, that's, that's a key. I'm not an inside information guy. Right? <laughs> yes, you I are an inside. Away from inside information as I possibly can. <laughs> I'll never be an inside information guy again. I was accidentally an inside information guy. And I'll never do it again. Yes, yeah, so one and done for you, right? <laughs> one and done. Hey, but you Let are a phenomenal snapper as well. Those are some good snaps you had just a minute ago. So nice job on that. Hey, so real quick, rewind just a little bit, though. Just tell your story in terms of you know how you became one of the best three-point shooters in Clemson basketball. You only spent two years at Clemson, but you had a huge impact. And just, you know, I remember watching you. And again, we can talk about that one Maryland game, which obviously that was crazy how you won that game. But there was much more to your game than that. How did you get from playing in Tennessee to Clemson University? Well, you know, to be honest with you, it was just I worked and worked and worked. And Anybody who's played at a high level pretty much will have that same kind of story. But I think even though, you know, I'm 6'2", you know, I'm a good athlete, or I was, past tense, past tense, I was a good athlete. I'm a solid pickup game athlete right now. But uh, past tense, I was a good athlete. I wasn't a great athlete. And, uh, you know, I was more wired to score than I was to be a point guard. So at 6'2", I had to find a niche. And, uh, you know, I could play the point guard, but Steffi, as you, know, as you well know, there's a big difference between uh, running offense and actually being a point guard. That's right. And I wasn't a point guard. I, you know, I was trying to get a bucket every time down. So I had to find my way to be able to contribute. Well, how was that? Well, the guys I played with uh, were great athletes and really fast. But at the time, Clemson was in a bit of a transition because Oliver Purnell was in. They pressed the whole time. They had all these great athletes, but there wasn't exactly a huge influx of skill. Well, they needed a guy like me, and I saw that. It was an up-and-coming program, and a lot of those things that I saw Clemson do would be able to hide my weaknesses because, I mean, I'm 6'2 with alligator arms. Like, my arms are shorter than my body, and it is what it is. But I also could get a shot off really quick, and I was athletic enough to get it off over top of people 6'6", so I brought something that was immediately needed to a team. And then whenever I got to Clemson, uh, playing with a guy, playing for a guy named Oliver Purnell, who gave me a lot of freedom. And at the time, I would have said he didn't give me not a lot of freedom. But at, looking back, my usage rates were one of the highest in Clemson history because, let's be honest, Steph, I shot it every time I touched it. So right. obviously my numbers are going to be <laughs> way up there, right? So, uh, you know, to go back to your question, Rich, like I worked my butt off. Uh, I think in between my sophomore and junior year, I shot 300,000 shots in the summer. Between my junior year and senior year, it was like 450,000 shots. Like I never left. 
And the only days I would take off would be the Mondays after an AAU tournament because you guys, I'm sure, remember those AAU tournaments were brutal because you'd play eight games in a weekend. It's not like it was now. They've changed all the rules now to where you can only play two two games a day and you, can only, you can't start a game after nine o'clock. But those are the only days I took off. But it was, uh, I worked my butt off. And anybody who, I think you guys know just as well as anybody, like, as soon as you're done playing, that work ethic never leaves, especially Steph. And I'm, you had a really good career, and I had a career that I thought was good, not great. It didn't never got to where I wanted it to get. And I think as a result of that, my, my drive to work never left. It's just a matter of now my body won't let me work the same way I used to, right? Yeah. So now I got to work a different way. That's that age and, thing. Uh, it's a huge thing. <laughs> but I, I've enjoyed this so much. And just being able to uh, go to Clemson and play for, for a guy that, that gave me that kind of freedom. And, and to be honest with you, a lot of foresight on my, my part, my mom's part, my dad's part to be like, hey, you're needed here. And that's going to be good for you. So that ended up working out really well. Hey, Terrence, one question I have for you is, and for players now when I you know, cover college basketball, is how do you become a three-point specialist? At, at what point in your life or your career did you kind of hone in on this is what I was going to do and then you know, really work that craft? You know, that's a, that's a good question because I think I worked on everything, but I, have, I had naturally good hands. And one thing I was taught really well that no matter where you're at, make it the same shot every time. And, and, and another thing that I wish I'd have learned earlier too, Steph, is like the really good players keep the simple stuff simple. If you just make the really simple play, make it look simple, you're going to be fine because all the other stuff's going to take care of itself. Bad players make simple stuff look really, really hard. And that's like if the ball's supposed to be swung, you're swinging to you're going second and third side offense, and that ball ends up at somebody's feet. Like shit, man! Like you're ruining the whole flow of everything. <laughs> and the good players make the simple simple, and then your team benefits from that too. The bad players make the simple stuff really hard, and then your team struggles as a result. And I realized I was going to be a shooter probably my first couple weeks on campus. Okay. Uh, whenever I got to campus, it was like. They brought me in. They brought a young man named DeMontes Stidden, who recently passed away, God rest his soul, who was an extreme athlete. And we had another guy named Clifford Hammonds, who uh, 6'3", built like a, like a, he was a beast. Like 6'3", 6'10", wingspan, defensive guy, didn't shoot it great, but did everything else. I realized that's where I was needed. And that was the way I was going to be able to play. Like play mediocre, ATO, play mediocre defense or do as good a job as you can, which wasn't great, Steph. I couldn't do, I wasn't a great defender. I tried hard. That's, and I think they gave me kind of credit for trying hard. But that's how I could benefit. That's how I could stay on the floors because I could shoot it better than everybody else. Yeah. And that's when I completely honed in on that. It's just interesting how you can become a specialist. You know, when I got to Florida, I was tab this like three-point specialist and I had no intention when I was in high school that that was going to be my role but it's kind of what you just become good at and they want you to do that one thing really well yeah. and that's just kind of how it unfolded but I kind of want to move on to um, kind of the today's game versus when we played right I just did a Florida Florida State game on Sunday and I got asked about it what's the difference because I went back and watched some film from 2008 and it's like every play was just like 
so hyped. Every the team, you when you went into it, you were just like so hyped, so excited. Like it was so intense, and I and I feel like today's athletes, maybe the transient nature of them that they bounce around. That like if you were to, I, I said this on air is like if you were to cut my arm open, it would bleed orange and blue. And for Florida State, if you cut their arm open, it would be Garnett and Gold. Like that's how it was. That's why the rivalries were so good. How do you examine today's games and the rivalry, you know, just, just the play of games versus kind of when you played? That's a hard question, Steph. I think a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, one, the kids change AAU teams a lot. Kids are transferring high schools. The, the top 100 kids, I would venture to guess 60% of them are prep school kids or hard grade military. There, there doesn't seem to be a deep-seated loyalty. You know, there's not a ton of people – that really stick with something all four years. And then now the transfer portal too, you're getting a lot of last year guys. And you see it in the kids' play sometimes, especially when guys transfer maybe up half a level. And then, you know, they need to really execute something. And then it's like, well, I see an opportunity to to score. I'm going to break the offense down. You see a lot more of that now uh, than you did a while ago. It's It's a hard question because – I just don't think kids are as competitive. Yeah. I, I, it's what it comes down to. And a lot of that's because they play so many freaking games, stuff. Like now we still have those kids that, that are competitive no matter what. I just think they're fewer and far between. And so speaking of today's game, just this season then in particular, uh, T.O., I mean, it seems like we're in a position where there's no one team that is separated itself 100% that – there might be eight to 10 teams that you could say have a potential of being the number one team. So how crazy is this season as we're just here in the first month of it? You know, it's funny. I, I sent this tweet out last night and I was like, you know what? I, I've watched so much college basketball more this year than I have in the past, just because I get, I get the privilege of covering everything. And I've come away from probably eight teams being like that. That team could be the best team in the country. Like, uh, like after watching them, like I saw Arizona play Illinois and Illinois is fine. They're, they're good. They're a top 20 team, whatever. But Arizona's size around the perimeter was like unbelievable. Uh, I, I look at Baylor. I saw them in person at Battle for Atlantis. Their length around the wing, around the perimeter, too, with Kendall Brown and uh, uh, Jeremy Sochan, the two freshmen that they added are both top 20 level kids. Like it might be the only team in history that won a national championship and got more athletic in the offseason. So go ahead and add them. Uh, Kansas, they're going to need more production down low, but they're really, really good. Duke might be the most talented team in the country because Paolo Bancaro is that good. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think he's the best NBA prospect that Kay's ever had. And I know that's a deep statement. I saw your eyebrows raise up a little bit there, Steph. I saw them. I realize this is a podcast, so other people don't get that pleasure that I just got right there. But the reason I say that is if you look at his measurables – 6'10", 255, his power in his moves, the way he handles the basketball, his his small area quickness, his ability to run some point for you. And he'll get rebounds, take off, and make a move, get into the teeth of the defense, and then make the right decision. At 6'10", 255 pounds, his shot's not broken. It comes off his hand nice. People can't guard him in the post. He hits tough shots. He boards. He can pass. Who can he not guard if he's focused? That's where I sit with him. And I'm talking Grant Hill. I'm talking Zion. I'm talking everybody. I think he's the best one that Kay's ever had. There's a reason Coach K came back, and it wasn't just for the victory lap. It was for 
hey, man, I got the best player in the country coming in. So it has a lot to do with it. There's just so many teams that could win and win six games in a row. And I, I didn't even mention Purdue. I didn't mention Alabama. And I feel like Alabama, because their guards are so good, they could win six games in a row. And, guys, that's what it comes down to. Can you win six games in a row? Exactly. And if you can shoot it well enough, and if you have enough firepower in the backcourt, you can do that. Look at what Auburn did a few years ago, right? Yeah. Whenever Bruce got into the Final Four. If you have firepower at the guard spots, you can win. And if your bigs are physical enough, you can win. And I think that the, every team that I just mentioned has those things. Everybody has holes. I think the parity at the top is awesome. I think and style makes the fight. A lot of it's going to come down to seeding. But going back to what I was saying, there's just so many teams with the right matchups could win the national championship. Has there been a team that has surprised you or disappointed you so far? Uh, so Iowa State being 10-0 and is ridiculous. And I think people forget that uh, TJ got there from UNLV. That was a weird fit. Otzelberger, it was a weird fit at UNLV. He's a Midwest guy. I mean, tough, hard-nosed, wants kids that are tough and hard-nosed. He goes and gets Gabe Kalsh here from Minnesota. He gets a couple of other guys, Isaiah Brockington, who was an all-defensive team performer at Penn State, and he's now there having a hell of a season at Iowa State. They're tough, and he's done a fantastic job. For them to be 10-0 after going 0-18 in league, in league play last year, asinine. It's yeah. ridiculous how good that is. Uh, Wake Forest, too, I think – Alondis Williams, he had a triple-double the other day. He got my vote for Conference Player of the Week because I have a vote in both of those, uh, Freshman of the Week and, and Player of the Week. And he had a triple-double last game, first one since Tim Duncan to do that. He was a guy that played at Oklahoma last year. Nobody knew he could shoot. I think he was in the teens shooting from three. And now he's come here, he's in the 30s, like high 30s. And he's been really, really good. And they've got a guy named Jake LaRavia who I think one of the best things you can have in college basketball, and I think both of you will attest to this, is having a four-man that can grab the ball off the rim and initiate your break. Because so there's not really pure point guards anymore. There's a few, there's, but there's not a ton of them. So in order to have that four-man who can grab it, take off, and then you have all three guards take off and run the wings, and having somebody that can make decisions and pepper the ball around, I think it's so valuable. And then I think that's important. And then uh, Seton Hall for me. I, I, I'm not, I, I was a, not a huge Big East guy before this year. I am a Big East guy. I love the Big East, and I'm from Tennessee, and they don't even want to let me in that club, but I forced my way in the club because so, Doster and Fanta are both Big East guys, so I've forced my way in. Like, Seton Hall is unbelievable. Jared Roden's a pro. They have a change of pace guy with Bryce Aiken that's so good. Kevin Willard's done a nice job. What about your disappointing teams? Uh, Virginia has been mightily yeah. disappointing, yes. and it was a weird team walking in. And I, I thought to myself, you know, you got Reese Beekman back. Uh, Kihei Clark's there for his ninth year. And then you have, uh, was it, Caden Shedrick is a good player. He's a year away. Reese Beekman's a good player. He's a year away. Armand Franklin is a perfect fit for Virginia, but he's playing with a bunch of guys that are a year away. Uh, Jaden Gardner was somebody that I think Tony Bennett realized, like, we're not going to be it this year. I need to inject some offense. He's never really had a 6'7", 245 post player that scores only around the basket. It doesn't make sense to what they typically do, right? So I think that's been that's been an issue. They've lost to James Madison and Navy, and Power Five wins were against Georgia and Pitt, and they beat Providence, but Providence has been really shaky. But Georgia and Pitt games have combined three points. Those are both teams that were picked at the bottom. I mean, dead last in the SEC and the ACC, and they're not very good. Uh, Maryland, I'm disappointed because now I have to wear a freaking hot dog suit to New Orleans. 
because I made a bet that they would be a top 15 team at one week during the <laughs> oh, entire man. year. So now I have to wear a hot dog suit down to the final four. And that's going to be as incredible as you would imagine. Uh, obviously the one that everybody's talking about is Memphis. Yeah. I think um, the Amani Bates, Jalen Duran, they had some momentum going, they won the NIT and then you inject this super youth in there. And I think Penny thought Bates was going to be ready right now. And he's really, really talented, really talented, but it should also probably be a junior in high school. Like he's just not ready to help you win. And there's a big difference between being really talented and helping you win games. And I think that's the hard part about what he's doing right now. Can they turn it around this season though? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's, I think it's too hard. I'm I'm disappointed because I thought the Larry Brown addition would help. I really thought it would help. Should have gone the direction of like a veteran college guy. Yeah. And, you know, Larry Brown's a veteran, but he's also a geriatric. So it's like, <laughs> let's like, I, I wonder his ability to relate because he was, he was from a time before whenever he was coaching college kids and, you know, he had SMU doing fine, but they were in a lesser conference and he was able to get better players because of his NBA stuff than he probably should have been getting. And it's just a weird hodgepodge. The staff is weird. And guys, I'd be pissed, really, like for a coach to bring a guy in. And it was like September when Imani came in. He he enrolled late to school, like not just committed late, like enrolled school when school was already in session. And then for him to step right into the starting lineup, like and then you're coming off a year where you guys finally got some things going. You get you win the NIT. You have some things you're trajecting this way. You add some talent and the talent is not ready. So it's like. I'd be a little irritated too if I was Lester Keones. Like, because you had a lot of positive things going and now you're making a lot of adjustments for young kids that aren't ready to do winning things. So that scares me. And I think Notre Dame has been disappointing too. What about Michigan? Uh, is it too early to say that they're a disappointment right now? No, because I, I think they're going to figure it out because their mistakes are positioning mistakes. So, like, their mistakes aren't attitude mistakes. Like, Caleb Houston is still adjusting. This year, was it Devontae Jones is having to rely on Caleb Houston, who's a freshman. He's still trying to figure himself out. Hunter Dickinson's a COVID freshman. So, it's like, these guys are still young and they're still figuring things out. And Musa Diabate and Hunter Dickinson don't play well together. So, a lot of this stuff is positioning and figuring out where my team's going to be best. I think they're going to be fine. I think by... Mid-February, Michigan's going to be really good because their their problems aren't the same as Virginia's. Their, their problems aren't the same as Memphis's. Like Memphis has just got a bunch of a lot of stuff that they it's it's less on the court than off the court, or it's less yeah, it's less off. Um, you get what I'm saying? Yes, less <laughs> off the court than on the court. Yes, right. Yeah, you got you got me. You got me. All right, as we're wrapping up, Tio, we're going to put you on the spot here. Conference by conference, who are you picking? To win the conference, we'll start. Are we going top six conferences? Power six. Yes. We're, power yeah, six. We're going we're to go power six because that's what you like said, right? All right. So <laughs> I like that. We will start with the ACC. Go. Duke. Stewie, it's, uh, that's the easiest pick. They're so much more talented than everybody in the league. They're not going to run the table. They'll lose two or three games because this is basketball, not football, and you're not going to have it every night. We all know that. And I'm going to, they're going to lose to somebody like uh, Pitt, and I'm going to, just bash them and tell them they're terrible and we're all going to feel that way. And then they're going to beat the next team by 40, but they'll go 17 and three in conference. They'll win the league. They'll win the tournament by 20. It'll be ridiculous. Big 12. 
Baylor. That's a crazy thing. Going into the year, I thought it was going to be Texas or uh, Kansas. Kansas has holes in their front court. I worry about that. I think Ochai Abaji is still so good. He can keep them in any game they play. But Texas hadn't quite figured it out. It's going to take them a minute, and they're not very athletic. I think that's going to help. Baylor, the addition to James Akinjo, like I was worried because Davion Mitchell and Jared Butler combined for 306 assists last season. 306. I was like, who the hell is going to make up that? James Akinjo is averaging 6.1. And as a team, Baylor's averaging 18.9 assists this season. 18.9. They averaged 16.9 last year. So, like, and they won the national championship last year. So, I like, I don't, this is a Baylor, tra- this is a Scott Drew train that ain't stopping. Yeah. And he just continues to keep it moving. So, yeah, give me, give me Baylor and Scott Drew and those guys. Big 10. You know, guard play at Purdue has been interesting. There's just nobody that matches up with them. And I think the fact that the Big Ten is a slower league, they lost to Rutgers, and Rutgers is kind of the outlier because they don't have a really a true big. And when I say a big, I mean like a big, burly, Kofi Coburn, Zach Eady, Travion Williams type big. So it was a bad matchup. And then also Rutgers likes to get up full and pressure you. And, and point guard play for Purdue is an interesting one. But I think Purdue ends up winning it. And I think, you know, style makes a fight. We said at the beginning of the podcast, style makes a fight. I think against every other team in the Big Ten, uh, they're going to be able to compete and win. I think win a lot, most of them, because they're just so overwhelming in the front court. How about the SEC? It's a hard one, but I'm going to go Bama because their guards are so deep. I think Javon Quinterly is terrific. He had 17 and 8 against Houston, and that was, like we said earlier, a grown man's game. And his ability to get into the paint whenever the hell he wants is fantastic. And Jaden Shackelford is one of the most under-talked-about scorers in the country. I think they're really, really good. Not only that, J.D. Davidson is a Russell Westbrook-type athlete. Like, terrific athlete. That goaltend that he had at the end of the game, that wasn't called. It was a goaltend, Bama fans. I don't know who all listens to this podcast, but I'm just guessing. Since Steffi's in the picture, there's a lot of SEC people. It was a goaltend, fans. It was a goaltend. Houston got screwed. That's what happened. But uh, I think Alabama could really, because, you know, Bidiaco has been a pleasant surprise, and he doesn't mind doing the dirty work. Like, that was a five-star kid that comes in and is like, hey, I'm going to screen my ass off, and I'm going to really rebound the ball, and then we're going to be fine. Pac-12. Arizona. And I know that's going to be an unpopular pick, but I think in order to win that league, it goes through uh, Westwood. And I think that Arizona has the athletes around the perimeter in order to guard UCLA. And the reason I'm not buying UCLA is because last year during the tournament, they were a first four in team. And to compound that, they rely a lot on hard shots, a lot of really hard shots to win games. Now, Mick Cronin slows it down. He doesn't. It was kind of a weird fit. Like there was a lot of criticism about him and it was warranted because of the kind of game. Like he was a Cincinnati dude, a bunch of rugged dudes. Like, it wasn't like the flashy UCLA glitz and glamour throw oops, super athletic. Now he's got a bunch of guys that are really good playing one-on-one, and they rely on a lot of fadeaway jumpers and one-on-one plays. Tiger Campbell's obviously terrific, but, like, he's going to have to be extra terrific for them to be able to beat Arizona. Like, so much of it, too, is, like, when you get to these really, really good schools, these top seven, eight schools, I think role definition is so important. And the teams that you see right now, that have been really, really good. They've adopted role that they understand what they're there to do. Like Juwan Gary at Alabama, for example. Excuse me, Wendell Moore at Duke, who because he's accepted a certain role, now he's benefiting from that role. 
And yeah, he's playing he's, better he's, than ever. He's he, and he's the third option. And because he's the third option, he's benefiting on some of these, you know, extra cuts and fast break things. And he's guarding the best team's best defender. Like role definition is so important. Arizona has that. Like Azulis Tabilas, like he's so much more athletic than I thought. He reminds me a lot of EJ Liddell, just on a lesser scale. Probably a little bit, little bit bigger, not as good a shooter, but just really athletic running the floor. And he runs his ass butt off. He runs his butt off, and then he gets down there and seals before the defense can get set. Like, I, I just love the makeup of that team. And then, you know, Lloyd is obviously benefiting greatly from, uh, you know, coaching under Mark Few for so long because they're kind of playing that same style, get it and go. But the difference between them and Gonzaga this year is they have so much size. Like, Sean Miller recruited dudes now. Hey, and you can say ass on this podcast. I know. I get nervous, though, man. Like, every time I say a curse word, it's like I want to go jump in a hole. Don't, I, now, I, don't I do that. Me. Don't do that without giving us your Big East pick. Uh, everybody's saying Villanova. I think they've been the most un- underwhelming uh, top 10 team in the country. I, like, I get where they're good. I get it. I get they're small. I get that, too. I like Seton Hall. And I, I said they were a surprise earlier. I think Jared Roden's a pro. I think defensively, like, Miles Kale, uh, Bryce Aiken, uh, Ike Obiagu, like these guys, they defend and they're tough and they're long at every position and they have change of pace. And Kadari Richmond at Syracuse transfer is about six seven. Like he's finally been unleashed from that zone at Syracuse. And now he can use his physical tools to kind of push forward and be really, really good. And, you know, his stats have been up and down. He played well against Rutgers, but his stats have been up and down. But, you know, at the same time, he gives you that kind of the spurtability and that extra option to like, if you get him, great. If you don't or if you don't get him, that's fine. If you get him, man, it's just icing on the cake and then we can be really good. Uh, And they shoot the ball. I I like Seton Hall. I I think Villanova can be overwhelmed. You know, the proof's in the pudding. That's what my college, that's what my high school coach said all the time. Proof's in the pudding. And, uh, you know, when they've played high level competition, they haven't won. I love it. Well, T.O., we can't thank you enough for being a guest here on the podcast. And as long as I can stay up late night, I'm going to be checking out Field of 68 after dark. Again, thanks so much, T.O. Thanks, Terrence. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. All right, Steffi, I don't know about you, but I think I just got a whole lot smarter from that conversation. Uh, Mr. Oglesby, T.O., he knows his college basketball inside and out. He was automatic today. I mean, he <laughs> gave us the scoop and then some. And if I ever need anything on the men's side, I'm calling Terrence uh, because top to bottom, conference to conference, you know, he knows his stuff. And I think he sees it from a really valuable perspective through his journey as a college athlete and then professional athlete and someone who really had to, you know, put in that extra work just to get out on the floor. It didn't come easy to him. So I, I appreciate the way that he approaches his commentary and his honesty. I mean, I thought he was great. Uh, 100%. And I think what you've talked about before, just even from your experience, grinding and might not be the most athletic person and very similar to T.O. there just talking about you know all the work he had to put in and obviously I think you're seeing that also on the side of his college basketball color analyst work as well just because he knows the game really well 
And again, if I can stay up late enough, I'm going to continue to try to watch the field of 68 after dark because I think it's so neat that they have the ability to have the live reaction during some of those late games. It, it's a really different type of concept that Jeff Goodman and, and Rob Douster and those guys have over there at Field of 68. So it was a great conversation with Mr. Terrence Oglesby. Again, we got smarter, a lot smarter, and we even learned something. MTE. Not to be confused with an MRE, which is a <laughs> meal ready to eat. An MTE no. is a multi. What? Clarify for me, Rich, before I screw this up. Multi-team event, and that's where you have these situations. It's not an in-season tournament because a tournament would have some type of bracket where you'd advance. But these are not. These are just uh, showcases uh, where you have multiple teams there. So there we go. MTE, multi-team event. We got smarter, Steffi. How easy is that? I'm glad I wasn't the only one a little confused. So, <laughs> That's right. New acronym. I just was wondering why he was talking about MREs in basketball. <laughs> but glad we learned something. And that was a solid takeaway. That was a solid takeaway. All right. So let's now shift gears to some of the solid takeaways from this past week. And some of the headlines from your perspective, Steffi, and some of the top games that you saw over the past week. Well, I have two headlines, and, and I, I think the one that everyone was looking at was UConn after Paige Beckers went down. What would they look like? And they lost to Georgia Tech. And granted, Georgia Tech is an NCAA tournament team led by Noah Fortner. You know, they had another tough game, and they barely beat unranked UCLA. So I think they'll just have to learn to play without her because at this point, we don't really know if she's going to play. She's considering surgery on that knee. But they're also missing AZ Fudd, who was the number one player and you know, Paige and AZ are best friends and they're not out there. And I think UConn is not used to not being able to give Paige the ball. And they're kind of trying to figure out how to play without her. And, you know, everyone likes watching UConn lose, maybe because they just dominated. But when, you know, they're losing, it seems to be entertaining. Uh, one team that hasn't been losing is South Carolina. I think they're just, just the clear-cut favorite. They got four top 10 wins. Uh, they just won without their point guard against Maryland on Sunday. Uh, it was part of the Jimmy V Classic. And Maryland is a Final Four team, Rich. I mean, you watched the game. You got to see, you know, just how good Brenda Freeze and her ball club is. But to do it without their point guard and have a forward at 6'4", Letitia Amir here come in there and run your point and not miss a beat. I mean, I know that there were some players, though, in that game that stood out to you. Oh, I cannot believe how good Aaliyah Boston is and Zaya Cook as well. Both of them each scored their 1,000th point for their career against Maryland. And that just showcases just how talented they are. And Boston can take over when she wants to. 16 points, 16 rebounds. I mean, that's a stat line that's insane when you think about it. And also just how good South Carolina is on the offensive glass. They had 24 offensive rebounds yeah. against Maryland. And Maryland's not a good rebounding team. But they out-rebounded Maryland 61-34, to and that's one of the reasons why Dawn Staley's team is, I think, they have a shot. Now, I looked at their schedule again. It's a tough schedule. It is, yeah. But I don't know if they can go undefeated uh, because they've got a game coming up against Duke. They've got Stanford. And then, obviously, once you get into SEC play, night in, night out, you know, yeah. anything can happen, especially with, you know, you've got Tennessee on your schedule as well. But – 
if there's a team that somebody said, all right, you've got to pick one team that can go wire to wire, number one, undefeated, who is it? I would have to say South Carolina's got a shot. Yeah. The thing that um, about the, their offensive rebounding, the biggest difference when it comes to that men's versus women's is in the men's game, so many players play above the rim. And so re- you can just pop up there, grab a rebound. But on the women's side, you got to go get it. You're yeah. not really jumping up and just scooping it off the rim like on the men's side. So these, you know, those 26, 25 offensive rebounds South Carolina had, they go and get those. Yeah, that's it's all about hustle. Impre- that, that's what is probably the most impressive thing about rebounding on the women's side is, you know, pursuing the basketball because it just doesn't come as easy. You know, I know it's tough. I know it's tough because you're banging around with other guys on the men's side. It's just the athleticism, the verticality that players have. Just go get it. Spring up there and get it. But it's just different. Then on, on the, the men's side, one of the things that was eye-opening to me is, uh, I've mentioned it a little bit, the Purdue-Rutgers game and just how crazy basketball is right now. I, I think that's what the takeaway is, that you think in any given situation, just on paper, oh, Purdue, you know, all what they have uh, with Zach Eady, with Jay Nivey, they're going to dominate Rutgers because really only Rutgers has Ron Harper Jr., and then it's Rod Harper Jr. that steals the show with a half-court shot, you know, to to win the game, and that's just the craziness of college basketball right now. So, I mean, I think we're going to be in for a wild ride in terms of there's going to be teams that win that you wouldn't expect. There's going to be losses that you didn't see coming, and I, I think at the end of the day, that's what we love. And even another game that I was shocked by. And that's Baylor Villanova. And when yeah. you look at a situation of what Baylor was able to do defensively to Villanova, they only scored 36 points. Again, Stephanie, at one point I was like, 36 points, that's a halftime score yeah. you know, for Villanova. Yeah. And especially Villanova's averaging about 75 points per game. I mean, that's insane. But that just showcases how Baylor was able to not only use their length in terms of being able to defend out on the perimeter, but you didn't think that they would be as good as they are. And this is a team that I really didn't have on my radar as a team that could win a national championship. I just thought that they had lost too much when you lose Jared Butler, Davion Mitchell, uh, Macy Oteague, and Mark Vidal. I mean, how can they replace all of that and be a national contender? Well, they answered that question (laughs) pretty quickly being able to do what they did against Villanova. And we know how of a well-coached team Jay Wright's team are yeah. at Villanova. Yeah. And that was just eye-opening. You know, Villanova, we're used to seeing them, you know, within their half court. You know, they run really nice offense, pass, cut, you know, what we associate with Jay Wright teams. And, yes. And, and Baylor just manhandled them. And, you know, they've got balanced scoring. I mean, they've got four players averaging double figures. But when you defend like that, which in, what's really interesting is being one of the better defensive teams in the country in South Carolina on the women's side, one of the best defensive teams in the country. It matters. You know, it, it does. It, it, it goes a long way. And if it travels, you know, you can hold up a title in March or April. Yeah. And, and as we've always said, defense does travel and, you know, Baylor's got to go to Oregon this coming weekend, and that will be an interesting game. 
But also, I think Oregon is probably one of those disappointing teams this season so far as well. So I, I don't see any drop off for Baylor because they are so good defensively. I mean, their length is just suffocating. I mean, they're averaging 11 steals per game. That's fourth in the country. I mean, 11 steals per game, that's insane when you're having that type of defensive pressure in any given night. So uh, that was one of the things that caught my eye from that perspective. The other headline on the men's side is Auburn and their probation uh, that they were placed on. And this goes back to you know, 2017, uh, the whole FBI investigation, and people were just waiting and waiting, you know, what was going to happen in terms of these programs that have, you know, been implicated in this situation. And so Bruce Pearl has to serve a two-game suspension, and he served that immediately uh, starting this past weekend. They got an easy win over Nebraska, uh, but then also there's four years of probation. Now, fortunately, they do get to play in postseason. So no postseason uh, for ban. them, that's a no postseason ban. I mean, that's huge for them. That's at the end of the day, that's that's the biggest thing. You want to be able to obviously play in postseason where it's interesting, Oklahoma State, they did receive a postseason ban. And now we're still waiting to hear, you know, five other cases, Arizona, Kansas, Louisville, LSU, and NC State. And we still don't know what's going to happen right now because they're still in the whole process of this new NCAA committee, uh, this independent accountability resolution process, which is supposed to handle these complex cases and speed up things. Well, we haven't seen anything speed up, unfortunately. And I think that's just an indication of, again, the bureaucracy of the NCAA. And, you know, who knows when this thing is going to be put to bed, so to speak. But at least Auburn knows where they stand and they can move forward now and, and move on. All right, Steffi, let's shift to what we have upcoming this weekend and this week, just some of the top games that you're going to keep your eye out on. Well, it's a big week for women's hoops before conference play picks up. We've got four top 10 matchups, so really big games. Uh, the first one is Tennessee, which hasn't been to a Final Four since its last title in 2008. Uh, they beat USF, they've beaten Texas, but they'll face their best opponent. Um, on Saturday, that's Stanford at 5.15 on ESPN2. That's going to be really good. Georgia is going to take on NC State. Uh, Georgia 8-1 and on the year. And both teams really feisty, scrappy, defensive-minded. I think we'll learn a lot about Georgia. And can they contend with South Carolina in the SEC? My third game, Rich, is Arizona going up against Texas. Last year, Adia Barnes won everybody's hearts with you know her and her children and the way that Arizona played in the national championship game. They've been proving people wrong this season as they've just continued to climb and climb in the rankings. But Texas is playing extremely well. They're averaging over 80 a game, up almost 15. Vic Schaefer loves playing spoiler. Uh, so that's a game that uh, you've definitely got to tune into. And then lastly, Louisville's taking on UConn. I mean, damn, can UConn catch a break? You know, no, they can't. Another day, another ranked <laughs> opponent for them, which I, I love that, you know, that Gino Arima schedules that way. But it's going to be a fun one against, you know, Gino and Jeff Walls. I think this is a timely opportunity for Louisville to get a get on the big stage and, and sneak a win against UConn. Or will we finally see UConn, what they can turn themselves into after the injury to Paige Beckers? 
Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting because I think Jeff Walls has a really good team at Louisville. I mean, when you have somebody like HVL, Holly Van Lith, that she can create a lot of energy because you're talking about somebody who has that competitive she wants spirit. It. She wants it. Yeah. She's got it. Yes, there is no doubt. And, and that does lead me to, I, I wanted to ask you about the whole Louisville-Kentucky game, I watched part of that, and Louisville gets the win, but it was so frustrating because we've had this conversation. There were two technical fouls called during that game on Louisville players, and it was so minor in terms of what they called taunting, and it's just frustrating that they're not letting them play the game with some emotion and it was nothing in terms of there was a blocked shot and you know it's just a celebration and then another time just you know there was a foul called and Louisville's just pushing the ball back to the Kentucky player Ryan Howard and they call a taunting foul and, yeah. and it's just ridiculous it it has been a point of emphasis by officials this season you know going into the year we have a meeting with them and you know that that's kind of been on their rundown is to get rid of some of those plays. And, and Louisville is a chippy team. That's why I like watching them. That's why people yes. like to watch them. There's going to be some kind of confrontation. People like that. I mean, no one wants to see a brawl. But, you know, you want to see passion, energy, and, you know, that it is what it is. And, for, you know, that is, you know, when officials come in with a point of emphasis, they're really going to hone in on it, and they are. Yeah, but I, I watched part of the game, South Carolina and Maryland, and they let him play. Shoving. It, yeah. Yes, yeah. there was definitely and some emotion after some, you know, block shots. Uh, and especially South Carolina. That was another thing. I mean, it seems like they block a shot every other time down the court. <laughs> They're so good. But at least they let them play a little bit, but not in the Louisville, Kentucky game. That's what made it fun too, Rich, because one of the Maryland players, Angel Reese, when she made a, a bucket on Aaliyah Boston, got in her face and said, and one, like they allow that to happen. And then, you know, it quiets the crowd. It just makes for just a better environment when you just kind of let players play. Maybe we'll get to the bottom of this by the end of the season. <laughs> How do we? Yes, I need you. I need okay. you to really start honing in on this and figuring this out. Cause this is driving me crazy. Okay. I'm on it. <laughs> right. Going to have to get decanter on the phone. I'll work on it, Rich. I love it. I love it. I got all the faith and trust in you, lady. What games all are right, you so watching? Yeah. So for me, I, I think it's a couple of games and these are some of the, the blue bloods, the traditional powerhouses uh, that we typically know on the men's side. And they're playing out in Las Vegas. Uh, it's not a tournament. It's an MTE. It's a multi-team event. <laughs> so <laughs> it parlays exactly what we needed to learn during this episode. And so You've got Ohio State versus Kentucky in the first game, and then you've got UCLA and North Carolina matched up in the second game. And I, I think there's a lot of questions right now with John Calipari in Kentucky. You know, do they have the talent to not only compete on the national side, but even in the SEC? You know, will they be a team that can compete for an SEC tournament championship? And you know, I think it's interesting also just Ohio State you know, what we saw them do against Duke. And now this could be another opportunity for Ohio State to beat another blue blood here early in the season and how much momentum that will carry over into the Big Ten 
conference games for them, especially when you have a Purdue and Michigan who are seem to be head and shoulders above Ohio State. But I, I think you got to watch out for Ohio State here. And then UCLA and North Carolina, anytime you hear those two teams matching up against each other, I mean, your ears perk up uh, yeah. because it, you're in that situation of knowing, obviously, the history between the two schools. And, you know, I, I think there's a situation here as with North Carolina, I questioned if they would be a real good outside shooting team this season. And could that be a detriment? And they're showcasing. They proved me wrong right now. They're six in the country uh, beyond the arc at over 40 percent. Anytime you can have that type of production, you can be a dangerous team because we know the ultimate equalizer in the game is a three-point shot. And yeah. so North Carolina has the guys that can win this game. Uh, I, I just think that UCLA probably has too much when you have a Johnny Juzang. I mean, he's the guy that can take over a game. Uh, but watch out for North Carolina and their three-point shooting. Also, Rich, there are, there are two losses on the year are to Tennessee and to Purdue. So very good teams that they lost to, and this is a huge opportunity for them. Everyone's talking about Duke out of the ACC. I, I know North Carolina, they, they want to be talked about as well. This would jump them to the front of the conversation that you guys should be talking about us. I mean, this is a huge opportunity for the Tar Heels. Yes, it is. And as you heard our conversation with Terrence, we asked him for each conference who he would pick as the conference champion. I mean, he immediately just said Duke without any question. Right. Yeah. And so this would be a huge opportunity for North Carolina to build some momentum getting ready for true conference play. So this this will be a really good test for North Carolina. And to your point, the other teams that they've played, you can't tell me that's not going to prepare them for conference play. No doubt. All right, it's time now, Rich, to kick off our automatics of the week. My automatic this week comes from the news out of the ACC and it was associate head coach Tasha Butts said on Wednesday she had been diagnosed with advanced stage breast cancer. and She's 39 years old. She intends to keep coaching as much as possible while she's being treated. And for those who don't know who Tasha is, she played at, uh, at Tennessee. She was part of teams that went 124 and 17 from 2000 to 2004. She is part of the Pat Summit lineage. And if there's one thing I know about that group, they will fight. And, you know, through this disease and the basketball community, it's a small one. And we battle with her. And it just, when you hear something like that, it hits home. And we just, we wish her all the best during this time. But I know that she's going to fight. That's automatic. I love that, Steffi. And I love that the aspect of it's not necessarily about on the court. It's off the court. And, you know, I think you even saw some of that, even Dawn Staley talking about that. She's going to fight, and now let's all rally around her. So I, I agree 100% that it is automatic that she will fight. And then, so for me, I'm actually going to take it to the court. And looking at that Ohio State-Kentucky game, I, I think this is an interesting matchup that most people are going to take Kentucky here in terms of just that it's Kentucky's name and it's their blue blood history, their tradition, and all of that. But I think this is an Ohio State team that is going to surprise some people. You know, when you have a player like EJ Liddell averaging almost 21 points per game, shooting 56% from the field, 72% from the free throw line, and also almost 7.5 rebounds per game, 
this is a guy that can get some things going for Ohio State. And so I'm taking the Buckeyes here in a game that might not necessarily be an upset, but I think most people would take Kentucky just because of their name on the uniform. All right, so that is our automatics for the week. And also, episode two is now in the books. And if you haven't already, please follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, And let us know your thoughts by rating and reviewing as well. Thanks for investing your time to listen. And this is Automatics.